0: Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate that. Uh, my wife and I, we've got, we've got a three-and-a-half-year-old, too. We actually have two of them. Uh, they don't speak three languages. They barely speak one. So we're still, still trying to figure that one out. Uh, hey, I'm James. Uh, welcome to church. Very glad you guys are here. Uh, If you do have a Bible, like Ron mentioned, we are going to be landing in Acts chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible and you can reach one of those blue-backed, hardback ones that's nearby, you're welcome to pick one up. You can take that one home if you'd like. It's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have a copy of the Word of God. We believe in the power of Scripture. We believe in people reading the Bible on a regular basis. So we want you to have one. All right. Now, today's message, not going to lie, a little bit different, a little bit difficult. Uh, it does involve um, a story in which a man and a wife die uh, because their their lie about how much money they gave to the church was exposed. So <clears throat> there's some there's some there's some there's some ditches in this passage that we're going to try to stay out and we're going to try to tread carefully and we're going to try to take this passage carefully and seriously. Because I believe it still has a great deal for us to be able to learn and to apply into our lives. And I'm hoping and praying that the Holy Spirit gives us the courage uh, to be able to take a look at this text, take a look at our lives, and be able to move forward in a way that Jesus uh, would have us to. Okay? So there's, that's what's in front of us today. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our text in Acts chapter 5. Jesus, please help. Um, help lower our defenses. Help... Um, increase our sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. Help my words to go forth in a meaningful way. Um, Help us to be a community of people who learn well and who are willing to change our behavior in light of the grace that you have extended to us. We ask for this in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, now, if you've ever sat around me for a while, you know that I'm a big fan of context because Scripture is one of those big books um, that needs some explanation, especially when we're going to come to a somewhat difficult passage like this. So let's talk a little bit about the story thus far, right? So we're in Acts chapter 5. You go all the way back to Acts chapter 1. Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected, and he's calling his disciples. And in the book of Acts, they're usually called apostles. And so he calls his apostles to him, and he says a couple of things. He says, I want you to remain in Jerusalem, the city in the middle of Israel, which will remain in Jerusalem until you receive power from the Holy Spirit. And I want you to go out and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So he's got this whole kind of like first gather, then scatter. Well, in Acts chapter 2, you see the Holy Spirit come down in power upon the apostles and those that are gathered around them in the upper room. You guys remember the story of Pentecost? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls, and on the power of the preaching of Peter... I think the Bible says that over three thousand people are saved in a day. Boom! This megachurch is instantly born within the city of Jerusalem, and this community is going to be comprised of both men and women, and it typically is going to be lower or lower middle class. And by the time we get to Acts chapter five, it's probably around five to ten thousand dollars, or excuse me, five to ten thousand dollars, five to ten thousand people altogether. And here's the thing, though. you got to keep in mind, these are people who followed a man who was crucified as a traitor and a criminal days before. So if you're going to take the name of Jesus and be a follower of Jesus and identify yourself with this new faith community that's centered around Jesus the church began to experience some of the same kind of opposition and persecution and hostility that Jesus began to experience. And so this gets represented through, uh, you see the arrest of Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 and 4. You see them getting threatened to not speak about the name of Jesus anymore. You see them being taken out of their homes. You see these difficulties arise. And so as you're dealing with a class that's already fairly vulnerable economically, when somebody would, to say, lose their job or be thrown into prison or a member of the family thrown into prison— This creates economic hardship for members in the community. And so the church's response to this kind of hostility from the outside forces is that the community of faith began a program of radical generosity to ensure that all within it were adequately cared for. Here in the next chapter in Acts chapter 6, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the feeding and the caring of the widows. So this meant that those who had some means, let's say people who owned houses or land, they would sell a part of that asset portfolio. So they would, they would take some of their capital and turn it into liquid cash, and then they would bring that, and they would give that gift. And the Bible uses the phrase, they would lay it at the feet of the apostles. This is kind of an important thing. The Bible uses that phrase to distinguish that they weren't actually giving the money like, to the apostles themselves, like here's this, I'm giving it to you. No, they laid it at their feet to entrust the money... To the apostles, then to distribute it amongst the community to those who had the most need. And this is an important part for me and my role as the executive pastor here, who's primarily responsible for a lot of the finances and those who work on my team in the stewardship department, we carry that responsibility very seriously, that those of you who give, and when you give, we recognize that you're giving out of God's goodness to you, and we take that not as ours, but as stewards of what God has given, and we endeavor to use that wisely and well. So uh, it works. This program of radical generosity is actually taking positive effect. Acts chapter 4 says that there was not a needy person among them. And the end of Acts chapter 4 tells us about a man named Joseph. Joseph does what we just talked about. He has a field. He sells the field, brings the money, gives it to the apostles. And when he gives it to the apostles, the apostles give him a new name called Barnabas. Barnabas literally means a son of encouragement. Because of the nature of Barnabas' gift, he was able to bless a great many people. And Barnabas, I'm mentioning him here because he'll be a key character in the chapters moving forward. But as we turn the corner out of Acts chapter 4, now into Acts chapter 5, we get introduced to two more characters, Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And they're going to do what Barnabas did, but with a twist. So let's read about it. Acts chapter 5, Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. A great fear came upon all who heard it, and the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Okay, let's walk through this carefully. Okay, so notice chapter one, verse excuse me, chapter five, verse one, indicates that Ananias, the husband, and Sapphira his wife, worked together, conspired together, to give only a part of the proceeds of the sale of the land to the apostles. Okay, now in this case it's Peter. And Peter, operating full of the Holy Spirit, uses a gift of discernment to be able to see through what Ananias and Sapphira had done. Now, Sapphira's not in the room yet, and he asked the question: why has Satan filled your heart to lie to God? And this is the same kind of phrasing that was used to describe Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus back in the Gospels. On the night that he was betrayed, the Bible describes that Satan entered his heart as well. And then Peter goes through and he asks a series of rhetorical questions about why Ananias kept back a portion of the proceeds of the land. So I want you to look back here at verses 3 and 4 okay, and ask yourself, what exactly is Ananias' sin here? Where did Ananias go wrong? Was it because he didn't give the full uh, sale price of the land? No. Well, what is it? It's the lie. It's the lie. In fact, Peter becomes very clear. He says, and after it was sold, it was still at your disposal. Peter would have been completely fine if Ananias sold it for, let's say, 100 and brings 20, brings 10. Hey, I happen to have this. Here it is. Totally fine. But instead... Peter confronts Ananias about the fact that he had lied about the amount, okay? And then verse 5 recounts that when Ananias heard these words, he falls down and he breathed his last. And the, and the phrase breathed his last is actually a Greek word. It's a medical term. And Luke, who's the author of this text, is, is a doctor by trade and training. So it makes sense that he would use this word to describe kind of the, your life expiring out of your body. All right. Uh, and then naturally, so then, then the guys come in, they bury him and all that kind of thing. Okay, uh, whew, a few questions here. Um, did we just witness a murder? <laughs> did, did Peter just kill this guy? All <laughs> right. No, did you? I mean, did you see that? Did you notice that Peter? He never curses. He never condemns. All Peter does in this whole section is ask questions. Peter asks a question inspired by the Holy Spirit to reveal Ananias' lie, and Ananias had a heart attack all by by his lonesome. All right, now, the story's not over yet. Remember, I told you that two people have to die in this story. So the husband and the wife have worked together to lie to the apostles about the gift that they're going to give. So let's pick it back up in verse 7 and see what happens to the rest of the story. It says, after an interval of about three hours... His wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter says to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she says, yeah, yeah, that's the sale price. That's how much I sold it for. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her besides her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Yeah, no, yeah, of course. Okay. Okay, so here's the story. So the wife, Sapphira, comes in a couple of hours later, right, and she has no idea what's happened. This is kind of a big deal because in ancient Jewish culture, if you were to die, the rite of burial is a very big thing. You don't just take a body and go put it in the ground. So Sapphira comes in. She has no idea what's happened. And and then Peter asks her, notice, more questions, right? But the kind of question that Peter asks Sapphira is quite different than the kind of question he asked Ananias. You can hear Peter give her a chance to be able to confess what she's done. Is this the amount? I can imagine him holding the bag. This right here. Is this the full sale price of the land? He's giving her an opportunity to confess and come clean, but Sapphira, she she misses it. She misses it. She's more interested. I'm I'm not altogether sure. The Bible doesn't say what motivates Sapphira to continue the lie here, but you can see Peter beginning to kind of almost hold out this olive branch and say, I'm giving you a chance here. But she doesn't take it. And then Peter, again, motivated with a gift of discernment, tells her that the feet of those who have buried her husband are at the door to bury you as well. And then hearing the double shock of not only that the lie that she and her husband had conspired about has been exposed, but also that her husband is now dead, she too collapses at Peter's feet, and she gets, gets taken out, and she's buried alongside her husband, Ananias. And then, as you would naturally expect, as this story, I'm sure, rapidly spreads throughout the community, this causes great fear. Uh, And I'm sure great respect for the apostles. All right. So that's the story. Now, I could wrap this whole thing up right now and say, guys, the moral of the story is really simple. If you lie, you die. (laughs) But I don't think that would make me a very good pastor, and I don't think it would help you out a whole lot as well. And so I started, I mean, like, so, I mean, I've been thinking about this for a while, and you read the text, and I've got, I mean, there's a ton of questions that I have about this text. But the one that I couldn't shake, and the one that we're going to try to focus on that I think will shape the rest of our time together today, is this question. Why does Luke, the author of the text, include this story, and why does he include it in such detail? Okay, I mean, you get, I mean, Acts is a book that covers decades of early church history. By definition, all history is selective. There are certain things that get included in history, and there are certain things that do not. Why did this story get included, and with such detail? I mean, we have a note that she came in three hours later. You hardly see that. We see lengthy dialogue. What was Luke's intention for including this particular story? What was he trying to communicate to the early church community about what it meant to be a community, and why this story? Uh, let's think back here. I think the answer to the question comes back if you again kind of think back to what Luke is attempting to do in this entire book, right? I told you earlier that you've got um, this early church community that's centered around the resurrection reality of Jesus Christ. These people are making a radical step out of um, out of Judaism into early Christianity. And doing so at great personal cost to themselves. And Luke is making some key observations about how this new... I want us to watch the way the Holy Spirit plays in here. Because in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit births the community the day of Pentecost. 3,000 are saved through the preaching of Peter. And then the Spirit forms the community. And now the Spirit is going to sustain the community. And what Peter is doing, if you look back in Acts chapter 2, you're gonna see um, that Peter describes this new spirit-birth, spirit-form, spirit-led community as devoting themselves to sound doctrine, intimate fellowship, fervent prayers, and great food. I think that's Acts 2.40. And this, by the way, is a model for how we run our life group ministry here. We're gonna have probably, I don't know, my wife and I host a life group on Sunday nights, and we're gonna to meet tonight. There'll be probably a dozen adults and at least that many more kids. It's complete chaos. And we always do a couple of things. We always talk about Jesus together. We always pray for each other. We always become better friends. And we always enjoy great food. You do those four things consistently, and you will begin to build genuine community, the same kind of thing that was present in Acts chapter 2. Or excuse me, Acts chapter, yeah, Acts chapter 2. So if you're not in a life group already, connect with Dave Metz or get him one. They're pretty fantastic. You see them engage, the early church, in this kind of spontaneous, radical generosity that we mentioned earlier, and they wanted to ensure that all of their fellow Christ followers did not lack the same essentials. I want you to see that this community had joy and hospitality and generosity, just written large, All the way across it, right? And Barnabas gets presented in Acts chapter 4 as as a role model for the kind of behavior that really sustained community. So his is the positive example out of the end of chapter 4. And then Luke wisely now gives us a negative example in Ananias and Sapphira. And you'll notice that Barnabas in chapter 4 and Ananias and chapter and Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 do virtually exactly the same thing. They both sell a piece of property, they both give money to the apostles. One, walks away with a new name, son of encouragement. Two, fall down dead. What's the difference? Yeah. Yeah. What was the motivation, right? You see, what Barnabas was doing was an act of self-sacrifice that benefited others. What Ananias and Sapphira were doing was an act of self-aggrandizement that benefited themselves. You see, in the early church, this was a big thing. Ego is going to be replaced by humility. Greed is going to be replaced by generosity. Distrust is going to be replaced by hospitality. Fear is going to be replaced by joy. These are the things that marked the early church community. These are the things that should mark us as a church community as well. And so the way to get ahead... In the first century, as it often is today, was through violence and oppression. That's what the Romans did better than anyone else. They were the occupying force in the land that these people lived in. Violence and oppression made you right, made you in charge. And the church adopts a policy of turning the other cheek. So not through violence and oppression, but through the joyful self-sacrifice of your own material possessions. Success! Success! is no longer measured by your portfolio, how many houses and businesses and land you can acquire, but by how much your resources can now benefit other people. Success is not measured by uh, net worth, but by the number of people you've helped and friends that you have made. And so into this dynamic of very countercultural living, steps Ananias and Sapphira, still very much functioning out of an old model that says, I'm going to do what I can to manipulate the situation so that I end up looking great and I get to experience the benefit of the proceeds of the money. So they conspire to choose uh, to lie, make themselves look better than they really were, and this pride is what makes them unfit for community life. So Luke's point in Acts chapter 5 is not, as, as I see it at least, um, some sort of scare tactic inputted into the early church to prompt people to give. I don't think that's it at all. I think that this behavior was demonstrated to us as a negative example for the kinds of things that destroy and tear down community, the kind of thing that Luke was most interested in sustaining, which was Holy Spirit-led community. And it's the kind of stuff that we can take seriously today because human nature hasn't changed much. I will tell you that I resonate with Ananias and Sapphira a great deal. I am keenly interested in making sure that my own reputation is bolstered as much as it can. I am keenly interested in acquiring as much as I can. I think if we're all honest with ourselves that we will begin to realize that all of us have something of Ananias and Sapphira within it if it's not for Jesus. And so I want to finish up by talking a little bit about maybe why Ananias did what they did which in my mind, here's the punchline, pride. And I want us to see ourselves as, as a kind of Ananias and Sapphira, but more, more importantly, I want to see Jesus as being the only hope we have for being able to overcome uh, this issue. Okay? Now, the text doesn't explicitly say that they were motivated by pride, but the way that Luke puts those two things in contrast i uh, uh, see Joseph turning into Barnabas, receiving a name and recognition because of his gift, and then immediately afterwards, Ananias and Sapphira potentially trying to do the same is pride. And pride is a kind of a tricky thing to nail down. You ever met a proud person? <laughs> I was working on an assignment. Uh, I'm in school. I'm in a master's program. I'm working with this cohort, and we were working on this team-based project, and we were about to turn it in, and we were asking ourselves, what kind of grade do you hope to get in this? And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. Like, I know we did the work, so whatever the prof says is going to be fine with me. And we kind of go around the circle. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy with it. I think, I think it's A work. I'd be happy with the B. And then one of my colleagues, he's like, I want this work to be the kind of work that they show the next class as what the best work is. <laughs> like, oh, okay then. Which... And, and and if you don't mind me bragging, it actually was. He wrote that on our paper. We're gonna show this to the next I was so I was anyway, I was super stoked. But some people have that kind of ambition. But pride can get manifested in a lot of funky ways. It can get manifested in kind of like a false humility. Right? You ever met somebody who's too proud to accept your help? Right? That's that's what that is is pride. I don't want to reach out because I don't want other people to see me vulnerable. I don't want other people to see me as weak. I don't want other people to see me as being in need. You know one of the best ways to build community? Don't buy all your tools. (laughs) Go borrow them from your neighbor. (laughs) Hey, man, can I borrow your leaf blower? Right? Yeah. Put yourself in somebody else's service requires humility. It's fun to be the person who gets to give. Sometimes it's less difficult to be the person who gets to receive. So pride can be a funky kind of thing. See, a pride destroys true community, though, because all of the relationships of a proud person orbit around the central question, what can you do for me? Right? Anybody ever dated a person like this? Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the beautiful thing about marriage. Marriage is a covenant in which two people can come together and be truly. What does the Bible say? Naked and not ashamed. Prior to that, if you're in a kind of like a consumer-based relationship, chances are you're looking for someone who is going to make you look good when you go out together in public. Or they're gonna make you feel more secure because they make more money than you, or all these we we have all of these pretty complex kind of like social constructs that we put into our dating relationships because we're looking for somebody who's going to benefit and aggrandize us. And see the challenge with a hookup culture or with the idea of compatibility, of course, is that you're constantly in danger of fearing that your partner will find somebody else who compliments them more than you do and then they'll leave you for the other person because they're only after what can that other person do for me. It's an exhausting way to live. And marriage and covenant changes all of that because it says, I'm choosing to love you, not as I hope you will be, not for what you can do for me, but because I love you for you. Right? That's what God does to us, by the way. I love you for you, and I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you. And that gives a relationship the power to be able to say in tremendously difficult times. But it requires, of course, a great deal of humility, which is sometimes difficult to come by. Pride is primarily concerned with what we call active image management, right? Why does, curiosity here, Facebook have over a billion active users a day? This graph is pretty old, but if you can tell, it has over, uh, this was from 2013, over 1,200 million. So that's 1.2 billion Total users. That number is higher today. Okay, no. Okay, now I'm on Facebook, and I'm guilty as anybody else as putting up a highly edited version of my life on Facebook. Right? Does anybody else kind of relate to that? Right? Because we are. I mean, especially if you're. I mean, there's nothing worse for a parent than putting up a picture of your kid and getting like three likes, two of which are from your mom. Like, this is, like, you, you, we, as parents, like, this is a really, this is a, this is, that's a hard thing. Like, this is my child. Like, this is me, basically, and you liking, not liking my, anyway, it's a whole complex thing. it's Anyway, they've tied Facebook to depression. You can read about it. It's not good. Um, we're all very interested in putting our best foots forward, and now we have a social media platform where we can broadcast that image to a far wider group of people, and we become far more interested than maybe we properly should about opinions of people who we've forgotten about from years ago. So here's the contrast. The contrast is, is that Jesus calls us not to ignore something like Facebook, but to follow something that frankly is a little foolish, right? I don't know if you're a believer here today, but if you're going to follow Jesus, I want you to know that you're following somebody who was crucified as a criminal. He was a Galilean peasant that never traveled more than 100 miles from his hometown, who had very, I mean, he died naked and poor. And this is the one that we exalt as King and Lord overall. Like, on a certain level, it just doesn't make sense. Paul will talk about, in Corinthians, the foolishness of the cross. Like, what are you guys doing worshipping somebody who died? Aha, but he rose again. Right? Like, what we're doing in Christianity is this very countercultural thing of, in order to, what does the Bible say? If you want to find your life, what do you have to do? Lose it. If you want to become first, what do you have to do? Oh man, you guys know how hard that is? Like, this is counterintuitive stuff. You don't get here naturally. All of our inclination and bent is to put the best foot forward, is to, I mean, I heard once 30% of all resumes are just absolute fabrications. I work in HR. I have got to call references. Did this person actually have this degree? Did they do this and that? Because people will lie to make themselves look better so that they can do what? Well, they can find the job that they think is going to bring them the safety, security, and happiness that they deserve. We're all motivated by this very strong desire to put our best foot forward. And Jesus says, ignore all of that. Jesus says, I have taken care of you. I have embraced you. I have established your identity not on your work not on your upbringing not on your heritage not on anything else but me so you can rest in that This is very difficult because we're constantly being told that we're not good enough If you're a parent on the internet today it's exhausting We've got we carry around this guilt that we're not if we're only doing more And Jesus says come unto me All you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest that comes when you no longer have to care. Where other people begin to define your identity, because now in Jesus you have. All right, so apart from Jesus, we're all Ananias and Sapphira. We're clinging to these misguided notions that we can manipulate and game the system so that we look better It's not true. Some of us may uh, fool and convince the world that we're better than we actually are, but when it comes down to it, in the eyes of Jesus, he knows us. He knows us. He knows what we're about. And guess what, guys? Here's the beautiful truth. He loves us anyway, right? He loves you anyway. That's the beautiful thing. Everybody fears that if who they truly were was actually broadcast to the entire world, everybody would walk away. If you actually knew me, you couldn't love me. And the gospel is, Jesus does know you. And he did love you. And he loved you so much that he died on the cross even before you even believed in him, he loved you. Even before you did anything in response to him, he loved you. And God will continue to love you. And he will continue to sustain you. Even through your petty, foolish, childish pride of which I am the chief of sinners. Humility isn't the groveling, weak, passive thing that sometimes we make it out to be. Guys especially really struggle with humility uh, because it sounds so not masculine. Uh, Keep in mind that Jesus was one of the strongest human beings, uh, the strongest in my mind, to be able to endure what he did. And I think the freedom that comes in humility is so trusting Jesus that your life can weather any storm. Endure any slight or insult or false accusation or overlook. Gosh, it sucks to feel like you deserve recognition and not get it. From your spouse, from your kids, from your boss, from your community, that's hard. You know what? Guess who has already approved of you? Guess who has already affirmed you? Guess who has already said you're welcome at my table? Jesus. All right? All right? So in Jesus, I think you found true love, true acceptance, true forgiveness. and The reason that Jesus can do that for us is because he models in himself the kind of humility that I think all of us can, that that he can now give us as well, right? I mean, Jesus was perfect, and what does he get? At his trial, he was falsely accused by two dudes paid to lie. He was beat, he was spit upon, he was whipped and flogged, he was nailed to a tree. What does the Bible say? He never says a word in self-defense. Why? Because he entrusts his soul to the one who judges justly. He knew that God, not the Roman soldiers, were the one who were ultimately in control. And he could endure tremendous pain, tremendous verbal abuse, tremendous degradation and humiliation. Why? Because his hope and his joy was not set on the circumstances of this life but upon the one who is going to judge justly and bring all things to right. So, the path towards humility. Let me finish with a few of these thoughts. The path towards humility, I think, has a few mile markers on it, right? There are these. I drew this little road sign for you guys. First, you've got to be quick to ask for forgiveness. you got to be able to learn from your critics, and you got to be ambitious for the success of others. And maybe those are in relation to, like, how difficult these things are you got to be quick to ask for forgiveness you guys ever found that true in your own marriage right she owns 98 percent of that mess but dang it if i don't own my two percent if i'm not humble enough to recognize that i was the one who also contributed. guys friends honestly we know this it takes two to tango right it's not ever one person's fault that's hard so for whatever it is that you've got to own own be humble enough to take the first initiative towards seeking reconciliation. Just be quick to ask for forgiveness. If you're asking for forgiveness, that's really hard. I was, um, there was a situation where there was a young man who needed to apologize to my wife. and It was a very awkward situation for him. And the poor guy, he stumbles through and he says, um, I'm sorry. Or I want to say that I'm sorry is what he said want to say that I'm sorry I came up to him afterwards like bro I get your heart I totally get it but wanting to say that you're sorry is a completely different statement than saying I was wrong please forgive me when you ask for forgiveness don't try to gloss over identify with and demonstrate empathy towards how your actions or behaviors or non-action and behavior negatively affected somebody else I see that when I did this, this caused you to lose trust in my ability to be able to care for you. And I know that causes fear in your life, and that's pain, and I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? That's a very different kind of thing. So I encourage you to make sure that you're careful with your request for forgiveness, because forgiveness is a transaction. You uh, incur a debt when you sin against somebody else. And what forgiveness is attempting to do is erase the debt. By asking the other person to forgive it for you. They can't do that unless you actually ask them to do it. Would you please forgive me? Cover that offense. Seal it. And when they say yes, right, and if you've ever been on the receiving end of this and you've had to forgive someone else, you know how difficult that can be in the moment because you want them to suffer. Well, careful, because that's pride too. So what you have to do, well, I don't emotionally feel like I want, well, yeah, that's fine. But forgiveness isn't an emotion, it's a decision to say that I recognize that you're now in my debt and I am going to be, by the power of Jesus, gracious enough to be able to cover that debt. And friends, if you struggle with forgiveness, I'd, I'd want to draw your attention back to Jesus because he has forgiven you of all and all that you will ever do. And he calls us to forgive each other as we have been forgiven. So if you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart today, that's not only pride, it's sin. And I encourage you to think deeply about the sacrifice of Christ and his relationship towards you. And in that moment, I believe God will give you the power to be able to make a decision to forgive, living or dead, because we all have stuff that carries with us for generations. But there's this transaction that comes through, and once you extend forgiveness, now that debt has been paid. So guess what? You don't get to bring it back up again. Right. No. Okay. That doesn't mean that the issue's sealed. It doesn't mean that you don't deal with the emotional ramifications of it. Some hurts are huge, and they will stay with you for a lifetime. There's no such thing as forgiving and forgetting. We're emotional people with scars and memories. And you may have to be at the feet of Jesus every day asking for strength to continue to extend forgiveness or continue to believe that you can walk in forgiveness because I guarantee you, if you're the perpetrator, the devil will use that sin that you have committed to screw you up good and keep you down and make you believe that you're never worth the love that God has already extended to you. So you've got to fight that battle on a daily basis and it comes through a sense of humility to be able to trust Jesus that he has actually forgiven you. And if you're the offendee, the person who needs to extend forgiveness, then you've got to be diligent to guard against bitterness and pride. Learn from your critics. Gosh. Um, This is a hard one. Um, Your critics can come in many forms. Um, Third parties who throw stones from a distance who have no idea being in your business. Your own spouse or your kids who know you deeply and can cut you the hardest. Um, your own boss or coworkers, workers um, yourself. Bible says, well, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says a lot. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, be able to learn from your own critics. Sometimes it's really hard because if somebody comes at us with all spit and venom, it's easy to dismiss that person, but they might have something that we need to learn from. And I encourage you to be humble enough to hear, even if it's incredibly poorly delivered, Right? Most people are really terrible at giving feedback. Even if it's incredibly poorly delivered, try to find there's something in there that God may say, actually, yeah, you do need to own this, and let's begin to work on this together. Humility enables you to be able to learn from your critics. Here's the thing, though. If you have a critic in your life, go ahead and just call them your enemy. Because you know what that obligates you to do? Yeah, yeah, you got to love them, right? You can't be indifferent about them. You can't shove them out of hand. Friends, we're called to love, and we're especially called to love those who aggravate us the most. Ambitious for the success of others. Have you ever found somebody else succeed, make more money than you, enjoy the vacation that you always wanted to go on, have the phone that you really wanted, but it's too darn expensive? It's hard. It's hard. Parts of us are like, why? And you start blaming your parents, you know. (laughs) If they had just done this, then I would, you know, well, okay. (laughs) Uh, Don't do it, friends. Be ambitious for the success of others. Guys, I guarantee you the way forward in success in life, and this is true in business as much as it is in the church, especially here in the church, friends. Guys, we are one body. We are one body. It does not make any sense for the ear or the arm or the eye to think that it's so much better. Guys, we're not, Okay? In, in in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, there's this tremendous leveling effect of grace. So you can be ambitious for the success of others. The Bible says to do what? Not only weep with those who weep, that's actually the easy part. You know what the hard part is? It's rejoicing with those who rejoice. Especially if you're not feeling like rejoicing. Guys, we're one body. Let's begin to strengthen and encourage each other. It sounds cheesy, but when one of us wins, we all win. So let's celebrate that together. Let's be diligent to be ambitious for the success of others. This is especially true if you're in business, especially if you're in management. If you have a responsibility for the the eight or ten hours that your people give you each five days a week, man, be ambitious for their success. Serve them well. You are there to represent a self-serving aspect of Jesus Christ in your workplace on a daily basis. Don't take the dynamic of leadership or management lightly you more than anybody else have tremendous influence over the lives of so many people be ambitious for their success and i guarantee you this well i don't guarantee you because some people can be jerks but it's more likely than not that those people will in turn be ambitious for your success as well so give give before you ever expect to receive give even when people don't give back give Why? Because God has given you everything. Ananias and Sapphira gave, but they wanted to give so they could get back. Because they tried to keep that. They were so concerned about image and self that they wanted to try to keep this all tight. Friends, we don't need to live tight. We don't need to live nervous. We don't need to live like, well, if I give, I might be taken advantage of. Jesus was taken advantage of. We can risk being taken advantage of too. Why? Because Jesus is on our side. Because Jesus loves and cares. So live more riskily. Hospitality is dangerous. Welcome is dangerous. The stranger represents threat unknown. Invite them in anyway. Why? Because Jesus. So let's, as a community, gather together, not around pride and self-aggrandizement, but around humility, around being the person who's first to ask for forgiveness. First, to be able to learn, especially from your critics. First, to be ambitious for the success of others. And in so doing, what we'll begin is we'll begin to develop genuine community. As we're beginning to do, I'm so stoked to be part of this church, guys. My wife and I have been blessed beyond measure because of you guys. Like, we do community well. And through humility, I believe, in the power of Jesus, we can do it even better. Let's invite our worship teams and our prayer teams to come forward. Jesus. God, pride strikes close to so many of us, myself included. So help us, Lord. Help us um, to think about you so much that we don't really think about ourselves at all. To think about the other, uh, to be genuinely ambitious for the success of others. Father, I need this. This community needs this. Help us to rally around the cross, around the one who gave up his life. And help us to do the same, entrusting our lives into your hands, knowing that you're a good God and King. We ask for this grace upon our lives today. In your name we pray. Amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at CanBeFoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.